Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. And we have a guest with us today. Hi, uh, my name's Arielle. I'm a, a writer based out of Canada. I'm here today to talk about post-rationality. We got into a conversation about it a few weeks ago at Vibe Camp. This is interesting enough to want to continue. We are fascinated by this post-rationality thing. I have a hard, I had a hard time rather, trying to nail down anyone as actually being a post-rationalist because... Like, they were at Vibe Camp, they were doing the post-rationality thing, they were like, yeah, I'm not really into the rationality that much. I'm like, cool, so you're a post-rationalist? They're like, eh, I don't know, I'm between the two, and like, almost everybody was saying that. I'm like, oh my god, is there no post-rationalist here at Vibe Camp, the post-rationalist event? But apparently we found at least one. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll cop to that, sure, I'll be the post-rationalist. Awesome. Real quick, I'm curious, what is it that you write? Uh, I'm actually finishing a novel right now, um, and I have a substack where I write articles. Oh, awesome. Well, you will have to tell us about that substack at the end of the episode here so we can uh, plug it, link it. Is there a post-rationalist slant to the novel? Yeah, actually, kind of, yeah. I want to dig into that in just a bit, but I guess first we should talk about what post-rationality is. Inyash is also an author, so I think this is totally up his alley. Yeah, I'm very curious about this. Just just cutting straight to the chase, what the heck is post-rationality? We, we couldn't quite figure it out. How would you describe post-rationality? Okay. Um, I think first, uh, I would define rationality as a, a kind of way of thinking or, or movement that tries to understand the world and uh, address its issues through the application of rational thought. Does that sound about right? Or Yeah, I think that sounds reasonable to me, Stephen. Yeah, that, that's what I thought was gonna be funny to start this because I was trying to think of how to define what a rationalist is, and I don't really have a good answer. So I think that's, that's as good as any, I mean, emphasis on evidence-based belief updates, but that's everything else. I'm, I think that's sounds right on board. This has been a long lasting problem, I guess, with rationality to the point where almost everybody is like, yeah, I'm not sure I'm a rationalist. I'm like rationalist adjacent. I'm an aspiring rationalist. Also, like not identifying as a rationalist is one of the core markers of being a rationalist, in my opinion. I'm glad that we have a definition, at least on hand, where it is a way of understanding the world through the lens of rational techniques. Yeah, the application of rational thought. Yeah. Do you think that's a problem in, in all kind of movements? People are un, unwilling to kind of um, explicitly align themselves with the way of thinking? Or is it doing things more specifically, this, this kind of nexus? I don't know. I think it depends on how, how conflicted people are about joining a movement in general. I see people having no problem at all jumping on like, I'm a Catholic or I'm a Democrat or Republican, but I often see people having a really hard time hemming and hawing about being a libertarian, right? They're like, well, I, I dislike Democrats and Republicans, and I agree with a lot of libertarian thought, but I don't know, I'm not ready to sign on to a party. So it's it seems like the more contrary and hating group think a person is the and a movement is, the the harder it is to actually define people as such a thing. Even when my friend Wes was recently saying, yeah, for a long time, I was like, I'm not sure I'm a rationalist, even though I was uh, reading all the rationalist stuff, listening to rationalist podcasts. I hosted a monthly rationalist meetup in my city, and still I was not sure if I counted. Eventually, he, he just had to cop to it. I, I don't know why this is a thing, but... I think, um, I think the more counterculture movement is, the harder it is to get people to like actually sign on the dotted line saying I'm in this group. Right? I'm too punk to be punk. Right. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's, it's like a conflict-averse conflict diverse element. People don't want to align themselves with something that'll piss people off or maybe get into risk getting into some kind of conflict. Oh, you think it's a conflict aversion thing? 
it might be conflict aversion and it might be kind of what Steven just said, kind of like a, a Gen X, like I'm too cool to be like uh, associated with anything or to care about anything too much. Or just to say, like, I, I check all these boxes. I, I think the conflict aversion is definitely true for some people. Definitely not true of the libertarian that I'm thinking of and of Wes, but uh, right. <laughs> but uh, I, li- I think that's generally a good point, too, because the second you, like, sign on saying, I'm I'm a this, someone gets to be like, oh, then I then you're all of these things. And it's like, well, not exactly. So I think that the more nebulous you can be, the, the less you're pinned down to stuff. Yeah, maybe it's also you don't want to cut things off. Like, if I'm X, then it means I'm not Y. Maybe people don't want to. Yeah, that's a good point. Try to make themselves slightly less legible to others by not using a label. Yeah. Okay, so post-rationality. I was going to define that now that we have rationality kind of hammered in. So I define post-rationality as, let's say, like, you're a rationalist, and so you're using rational thought to understand the world and solve all these problems and decide how to act and all that. There comes a point where there's there's kind of a realization that the rational faculty of the human mind isn't the only place that rationality exists. That rationality also um, is implicit in emotion and intuition. Like when you have an emotion about something, there often is like a, a, a downstream kernel of rationality to it, even one that in some ways can be more efficient and more true than, than rational thought itself. And there's also there's, there's rationality in the outside world and in, in nature and in, in inherent in the world as it currently is. And once those realizations happen, I think rational thought itself falls down a few pegs. It becomes less important, even if rationality in general is still viewed as central. I like that. I think that's interesting. I had a similar journey, I guess, over the last few years. I always liked philosophy, even like as a teenager, took all the philosophy classes in in college, immediately was persuaded by Peter Singer's utilitarian arguments, uh, the drowning, you know, child in the pond and the uh, animal liberation and stuff. And that's very popular, the utilitarian mindset in the rationality uh, group. And over the last few years, I've just become more and more of the position that I think humans aren't good utilitarians and that to try to like, you know, to feel bad for not being a saint is not productive. I don't know if it's it's quite the same thing, but it's a similar kind of maybe realizing that this part of this definition doesn't quite suit me anymore. If that sounds at all similar. It kind of does. I guess my question would be if, if humans aren't good utilitarians, then like how does utilitarianism get instantiated in the world in your new view? If we successfully built a godlike AGI, I think I'd want it to be more utilitarian than, say, a virtuous looking out for. I think the reason that you know virtue ethics isn't popular is because it's very wishy washy. But that's that kind of fits with being a, a squishy human. But I wouldn't want my god to be a, a virtue ethicist, right? I'd want it to actually be concerned for making the most people the most well off because it wouldn't feel bad for only giving ten percent of its income when it really could get fifteen or something, right? Yeah. Sorry, I, I hate the godlike AGI argument. <laughs> that's that's fair. Um, an- another case I might consider it in would be large policy discussion. You know, it's like if I'm an individual, I, I do think it's it's important to give some amount of my money to effective charities if I have money to give. It might just be important to me as as a person to get that kind of immediate feedback from giving you know a, a generous tip or something, even though the person with a job, you know. I was at a wedding last night. I tipped the caterers, even though I'm just an, an attendee, but they had a jar as I was leaving and I didn't mind. They're already being paid. You know, like they don't need that money as much as somebody who desperately needs it. But as an individual, I can, I can make their lives better and I can see that. And as a person, that's important to me. But as a, as a larger institution, like a government, I would want them to give their money to things that actually matter, not things that make them feel good because governments don't feel good. Okay. Yeah. So as a, as a human, you can be governed by virtue ethics, but you want larger bodies to be still be more utilitarian. I think so. 
Do you have a beef with utilitarianism in general? Kind of. I, I think utilitarianism, it's valuable as a, a tool uh, nested mm-hmm. within a larger moral system. Um, but yeah, I don't, I wouldn't call myself a utilitarian. I've always thought that utilitarianism is the best way to judge the virtues that we want to instill, but virtue ethics is what the humans run on. Okay, so you, so utilitarianism is how we judge different virtues, but ultimately we're running off of virtue ethics. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, which virtues tend to bring the most utility to both the people who practice them and the wider world in general? Those are the ones we want to instill. Part of my beef here is, is this, it gets back to kind of the post-rationalist perspective. Any solution that is kind of arbitrated by, by the rational mind kind of from beginning to end, like we're going to do you know, a utilitarian classification of all the virtues, decide which ones are most valuable and apply them. I'm very suspicious of, of solutions like that. I hear what you're saying. I disagree with the um, emotional affect behind it, because when I say decide which ones are best by looking at the utility of them, I mean things like which allow people to have the most fulfilling lives and the most deep emotional connections with other humans and the most not being depressed and isolated. The virtues that do that are the ones that we want people to live in their lives. Hmm. I guess I don't want the decision mechanism to be totally rational or not, to- not, okay, that's sorry. That's the wrong way of phrasing it. I don't want the decision mechanism to be determined by the application of rational thought alone. To be like strictly coldly calculating. I feel, I feel like what you're describing and you can just correct me if I'm wrong. It's like, there's all these emotions. I guess we're, um, we're assigning them valence based on our emotions. Then we're doing a calculus where we're saying, you know, how do we maximize these emotions in the world overall? And you know, which virtues are most likely to lead to which emotions? Like, is that, is that pretty accurate? No, that's that's very far from accurate. Okay. Um, I, I would much more look at how people live their lives and how they find fulfillment and joy and peace. And the people that tend to do that the best, look at what virtues they're extolling, how they're living, and then try to promote what they've been doing. Because I don't think you can just look at emotion and say, like, this emotion is good. We should emotion max this one. I, I think it's very much more a look at how well the life was lived and how fulfilled the person is and then extrapolate from that. Okay. Okay. I think I, I did misunderstand. So you're, 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 you're taking individual lives as case studies and then, yeah. yeah. And then analyzing kind of which emotions were central, which virtues were central and then kind of building a moral system based on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that seems, that's an interesting approach that I, yeah, that I, I like more. It seems like it blends more, more techniques. So I think it's quite cool. This comes to like one of my confusions about the rationality versus post-rationality divide. You said uh, earlier that the cold calculating part of rationality, it needed to learn to take emotions and other things into account and that they're important. I think rationality like does that in in like the original sequences. Okay, it tries to do that. Like it's always been said from the very start that like emotions are valuable information. Emotions are both the input we take into our calculations and one of the things that we look for in our output. Like if you're not living a good life, if you aren't having fun, then why are you doing any of this stuff? But as you say, that doesn't seem to come through in practice. Like everyone seems to think this is not how rationality is actually done. And I'm I'm trying to figure out why that is the case and what post-rationality has that makes it seem to take that into account and make it a different thing. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe the insight is there. It's just they're not totally integrated. Uh, I guess I, I do see a lot of ways of thinking and talking among kind of the more rationalist aligned, or even if vibe camp in general, didn't feel like they fully integrated. But like, hmm. like even these, these topics, like 
utilitarianism and and AGI, implicit in those, there's a real elevation of the mechanism of rational thought and a devaluation of other other parts of reality. When we take those ideas to their logical conclusion, I, there there is an imbalance there that remains. I definitely agree with you. I, anyways, see that a lot in the effective altruism movement, where people tend to hyper focus on maximizing utility, and it seems to lead some to some pathologies. And on the one hand, I can't deny they're doing amazing things in the world and genuinely making a lot of lives much better, a greatly reduced cost so they can make even more lives better. But on the other hand, like something about it is often kind of off and it makes people, it, it seems to hurt them psychologically over time. <laughs> I think that that's a, a good point. I like the, the use that uh, you used the word fulfillment earlier when talking about like judging a good life. That's, I think what I, when I talk about my departure, I think from, like living my life as like trying to operate like utilitarian is I don't find that fulfilling at all. Uh, I, I can recognize intellectually I'm doing good, but like, it doesn't feel anything like I give charity money to give well. And I think I check the box saying, spend this, how you, however you think is best. And that's just drafted from my account every month. And I totally forget about it until I have conversations like this. I get no positive, like emotions from doing that. It's just like a, it feels like strictly duty based and kind of vacant. And yet, giving somebody on the street five bucks feels really nice, right? Even though I realize that's like intellectually, that's a way worse use of my money. It's like, oh, I'm helping another person that I can see. And as a person, that's actually important to me. And what you said, something that that struck me is just how living a utilitarian life was ultimately, it felt it was an emptiness to it or a kind of lack of fulfillment. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's kind of my complaint, I guess, with what I perceive as being kind of a, a rationalist hub of ideas, where again, we're defining rationalism as being very focused on the application of rational thought as a tool, you know, utilitarian and like ethical altruism, this idea that like the AIs are, are equivalent to us, the style of thinking about the world, it's very data driven. And that it, it, there's something about it that's just that's very, it feels like it's missing the most important part. And, and I do see a lot of people thinking that way. What is the most important part? Uh, like the the rest of reality that we're not able to ad address through those tools. Like um, Stephen called it before, evidence-based belief updating, like the parts of reality that are not captured by that. An example, in the last year, I bought and moved into a new house and it's like more expensive than my old one. Doesn't, it doesn't really seem like it justifies the shift. The gain from it doesn't seem like it's commensurate with the cost. I sat down at the pen and paper and looked at it and it's like, yeah, this seems like it's not really worth it, but we still want to do it anyway. So it kind of like the, well, we still want to do it anyway part, right? There's probably definitely a, some points where it's like, you know what, forget what I feel like. I should just do what actually has the most evidence for it. You know, like if I'm sick, I might not resonate with the treatment option or whatever, but like, well, it has a great success rate. Who cares how I feel about it? That might be a time to just shut up and look at the numbers, but yeah, I'm kind of yeah. through this. Yeah. I guess it would be like kind of um, epistemological equivalent to utilitarianism. Like I definitely believe in the application of rational thought to problems like in business or if we're conducting a scientific study or if we're sick and trying to figure out what to do. But those are all sub problems in life. I think the larger arcs of life are better described as stories than as problems that are going to be solved rationally. Uh, I'll make that assertion. I love that as an author, uh, <laughs> not, not as an author myself, as you being an author. I think that's a fun, fun thing to say. I see what you're saying. For context, I hadn't heard of post-rationality until Enosh came back from Vibe Camp. So I, I don't know if there's like an actual online community or, or schism or something. I'm, I'm totally unaware of it. I don't think I have a lot of pre-packaged uh, baggage on this subject. The problem with um, the, the rationalist way of addressing the world is that it's insanely powerful. 
It, it's like a super useful tool for doing all sorts of things. The majority of the population, when this whole thing began in the aughts, didn't do a lot of rationality. More was sorely needed, in in my opinion. And maybe it's gone too far now, but it's hard not to use a tool that's this useful for getting what you want and saying, well, if what I want is to be happy, can't I use the tool for that as well? It's It's been great for everything else. Yeah, well, that's kind of um, that's the, kind of the argument of the Enlightenment, right? Or, or one of the arguments, at least. Science and rationality works so much better than what we had before, solving all these problems. And therefore, like, let's just trash everything we had before and try to solve all our problems this way. And I think, you know, as a society, we're reaching a horizon where we're kind of realizing, like, oh, like, actually trying to rationally, trying to address everything that comes up, creating this, like, hyper-rationalized, hyper-technologized world has a lot of drawbacks. There, there, there is that emptiness to it. There is something that's very missing. The same tools might not be able to, to bridge that horizon. There's a certain class of problems they might not be able to, to touch. I have heard that a lot. And based on the failure of being able to solve those problems over the last decade, I'm really starting to agree. Uh, I, I was recommended an article on post-rationalism from the New Atlantis, I think it was, a major theme of it was basically exactly what you're saying. Rationalism looked like this great tool to fix all sorts of things, but there is this fundamental problem about living life that it seems to not be fixing for the vast majority of people, and that's causing disillusionment. Has that been your experience too? Were you, you said, actually, did you say that you weren't a rationalist? You went straight to post-rationalism? I was kind of a rationalist when I was a teenager. And okay. then yeah, then I became um, a socialist for a while, which I think is just a different kind of rationalism. Huh. In re- recent years, I've been more on the post-rationalist, Jungian kind of... Yeah, go ahead. What caused you to pivot to uh, post-rationalism? When I became more disillusioned with socialism, it was the same kind of arguments. Like, the, the arguments... Well, it, it's sort of, you know, why doesn't a planned economy work? Um, why can't we just figure out everything that's going on in the economy and just fix the things that don't work and have a better economy that's better for everybody? Well, because there, there's, a, there's a horizon past which rational thought fails. This is really fascinating to me because, okay, there's there's a minority of socialist rationalists, I guess, that I know, but the default rationalist is very anti-socialist, strongly libertarian. Certainly the original founders of rationalism are all strongly socialism is one of the roots of all evil. And in large part, that is because they think they can measure all these things, which they simply can't. So it was kind of, it was slightly surprising to hear that uh, rationalism is tied to socialism like that. I can sort of see it if one were to assume that one could measure and analyze these things. I just think that's a bad thing to think or a wrong thing to think, not a bad one necessarily. But I guess okay, I guess this is really interesting because I feel like that's like an implicit post-rationalism in the rationalist community. But I guess one question I would have would be why would these these figures, why would they think that an economy is too complex to be planned? But the human body is so inherently comprehensible that we can make it immortal. And the secondary effects of that are so inherently comprehensible that we're confident this is the right thing. As to why an economy can't be planned, because it's been empirically shown that uh, it is too damn complex. And maybe theory could have figured that out. But uh, once we actually put it into test, it was pretty damn obvious pretty quickly that there is no amount of central planning that can take everything into effect. It is a highly chaotic system. As to why the body could be made immortal through enough tech advances, it doesn't seem like there's any particular reason it couldn't. And we've been making 
so much progress recently that it seems entirely within our grasp to reverse or at least arrest all the major drivers of uh, aging in the next few decades. Certainly if we have a lot more machine help. Nah, no, I'm very skeptical of that. I mean, I mean, for, for, for me, like when you look at the history of medical science, you see a lot of the same issues that crop up in planned economies, you know, like a lot of ideas that seem like great ideas, and then horribly backfire for a while. And then kind of the good parts get taken out and implemented. Like they're both complex systems. That could very well be the case. And if we never get immortality, that'd be a bummer. But at least along the way, we cure a lot of diseases and solve a lot of terrible things about aging, uh, even if we don't get immortality. Whereas if we try to have centrally planned economies, we end up with uh, famines that kill tens of millions of people and fascist regimes that impose the, the Soviet rule on everyone. Yeah, having, having you know ch- hospital childbirths killed thousands and thousands of women. We may want to move away from those as well. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, now we've refined certain techniques that undoubtedly have saved a lot of women as well. But mm-hmm. I, I don't see it being that different from socialism. The first iteration was catastrophically c- catastrophic. And then we, we pull out, you know, oh, actually, socialism works in these limited areas in these limited ways. It, it, it seems in medicine, many first generation technologies go wrong. Yeah. I think one of the aspirations of, of rationality is to skip the part where you screw up the first iteration, right? That would be best. But even if you don't skip that part, to learn from it is super important. And learn from like other, other failure modes of, of previous attempts at other enterprises. Right, which is why the current rationalists, at least the ones that cropped up in the early aughts and started the current movement, were against socialism because they're like, yeah, we, we do learn from the past sometimes, and this is one of those times. I would argue that part of the reason the first-generation technologies go so catastrophic over and over again is we're under- underestimating the complexity of these systems. Like We're underestimating the complexity of economies, and we're underestimating the complexity of our own bodies and minds. I can agree with that, but also you got to start somewhere when you're trying fucking around and finding out right yeah i guess what's the alternative then if because the alternative if the alternative is playing it safe and not trying the new thing you know like if there was some breakthrough pill that could double a lifespan it's easy to see how that could actually go terribly it'd be expensive only the rich assholes could afford it and they'd make they'd make life worse for everybody else for two centuries right but if the alternative is just not trying anything because it would rock the boat i guess the boat is rocky enough that i don't know it sounds callous to say like got to break a few eggs to make an omelet but like (laughs) you know if if the experiment of you know if they failed experiments of socialism they set out to solve a problem right they failed to solve that problem but they they saw a problem in need of a solution for me right here the real fundamental question is 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 this model that we're describing does it function kind of how we just talked about like there's these new ways of doing things and we implement them and they often go very wrong but then we refine them and figure out how to apply them in a more refined way, eventually they, they, they stabilize in a form where they're just generally beneficial. The benefits outweigh the drawbacks. So is that how it's happening? Or are we on a path that's gone very wrong at some point and that's based on some fundamental misapprehensions about reality or human nature? And do we have to go back and change the way we're thinking about things on a deeper level? Hmm. Oh, and that's what post-rationalism is. The idea that we do have to go back and think about things on a deeper level. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. One of the really interesting and, I don't know, highly energetic things about post-rationalism is that going back to try to find a thing that is fundamentally wrong and figure out what that is and restart. I don't know. I don't think anyone knows what the 
core problem is and how to fix it. And so like every single person I see in the post-rationalist movement is trying something weird and new and different from what everybody else is doing, at least in some way. And in, in many cases, in a very drastically different way, some of them to the point where like, I'm, that's just ridiculous. This is literally just magic you're trying to do. But when you have such a deep fundamental confusion on what even is wrong and how it could possibly be fixed, I think having 10,000 people going at it in 10,000 different crazy ways is maybe a good way to go about it. And uh, that's part of the excitement of being like right at the very beginning when everything is pretty unknown. Is that is that how you feel about it? Yeah, I really like that way of putting it, actually. That seems that seems that seems right. <laughs> and I think that describes the vibe difference pretty well, too, like between the rationalist and the post rationalist. There's a more like desperation trying to figure out. Yeah, it, it's, it's casting a much wider net among the post rationalists. How do you even judge what's effective or not when you don't have a a paradigm to go with? Huh. Well, I think maybe that's where um, I like the idea of rationality persisting mm-hmm. in the idea of post-rationality. You know, we're not becoming irrationalists, we're becoming post-rationalists. So we're still trying to find solutions that are updating the world in a rational way. They just may- might be rational solutions that our minds can't apprehend now or for quite a while. One intuition I have about kind of the, the, the solution or the kinds of solutions that might be valuable is, is I tend to think that one area where rationalism goes really wrong is in the devaluation of the past. Like that mm. is a tendency... There's a tendency I see, like your celebration of technology and newness and innovation. I think in post-rationality, we get back to um, kind of the, the idea that, you know, the way we did things before wouldn't have been the way we did things if there wasn't some value to them, some survival value or some rationality. And there's there's a drive to kind of re-explore some of the ideas of the past that may have been abandoned by society. That's interesting. Which, I, I like that because on the one hand, that's definitely true, right? Like people did it this way because this is what was best. And you know, it might be some hidden wisdom or some non-obvious thing as to like why that was chosen. You know, like the, the popular example is like uh, religious prohibitions on eating pork, uh, mm. you know, because it's harder to cook it purely enough to get rid of the the diseases or the bacteria or bacteria that would cause trichinosis, you know, like some, some serious problems. I probably got the disease wrong there. But in any case, you know, like, so there's stuff like that. But then on the other side of the coin, I think people did things the way they did because there just wasn't a better way to do it. And they were like, oh, man, this sucks. It's the old times. There's nothing to do. You know, everything hurts and there's no aspirin. Medicine has had its share of fallbacks, but like it sure is cool to be able to get a vaccine and not get sick. Again, there's there's problems with all these things. You know, the plethora of like mental health medications are just like a kind of a complete joke. Um, I said this to somebody who takes uh, uh, an antidepressant, but like, you know, half the time it's like, we don't know why this works. We think it might. You know, it has all these problems. Go forth and see if it helps. I think we'll look back in a century and be amazed that that's how we tried to solve this problem. But in the face of the problem they're trying to solve, I guess people weigh the risks and decide that it's worth taking. Conditions have changed drastically. Just the fact that you can have sex without reproducing now is just ground-shaking consequences for the world. Well, that's an awesome example, actually, because I feel like there's like, that's kind of an example where maybe like the rationalist and the post rationalist might interpret different like I, I think there's a narrative that um the prohibitions on sex were mainly to control reproduction right, for, for for stability at a time when um women couldn't control their reproductive um you know when we didn't have birth control and when we have birth control we don't need prohibitions anymore and so we have the sexual revolution and like that's just that's just what happened if i was going to take like a post-rationalist lens and again forgive me if i'm um oversimplifying the rationalist possession here but i think a post-rationalist lens might say like I guess I, I would say, like, like, you know, when you look around today, 
it's not totally clear that um, the culture of free love is really benefits any, everybody or even really benefits women. There are all kinds of ways that it, it seems to be going wrong pretty subtly, like much more subtly than the gross factor of, you know, now I can have free, you know, lots of sex and not have a baby. Like even beyond that. Ugh. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. There are other other implications to liberalizing sex that way. Well, and there may have been deeper reasons for the prohibitions to begin with. That example in particular, it's, you mentioned like, you know, post-rationality casting a wider net. And I think that the, the rationalist might say, well, the wider net is just wasting net. I, if I'm trying to run up the metaphor and I, I might be wrong there, but they'd be like, no, we, we, we thought about it. We decided that this, you know, that looking over there isn't worth, isn't worth the resources or something. I have a pretty, whatever, traditional, what do you call it? I guess relationship situation. Like I, I know that, uh, in the you know because polyamory is like super common and well i don't know super common way more common in the base population in the rationality community than elsewhere maybe there's reasons other than controlling reproduction that humans like to pair bond rather than have multiple partners or something just hypothetical you know just as a possibility is that the kind of thing you're gesturing at yeah pretty much i mean i'll just say straight up like i i I think i don't think promiscuity i think it tends not to be very good for women like psychologically or existentially I don't, I don't think it tends to be very good for women. It seems to vary by the woman, at least somewhat, but wouldn't post-rationality encourage experimenting and finding out what is more likely to work for you rather than following any specific set of rules? Mm, maybe. I kind of think, uh, I, 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 think, I think... I think there's ways that human-individual difference gets both under and over-exaggerated in mm-hmm. our culture. I guess I kind of am a little bit suspicious of some of these statements, like each individual is different and needs to figure out what works best for them. I think that statement can sometimes be a bit of a a thought stopper. That's a good point. I mean, certainly there are some things that's like, you know, I don't think the post-rationalists are going to decide like, you know, I think washing your hands after going to the bathroom, let's try not doing that and seeing what happens, (laughs) right? Like there's some things that are pretty settled and, and aren't really worth experimenting on. An interesting part of all this is that rationalists, at least originally, and I think still to this day, tend to be a very outside-of-the-norm group psychologically, which is probably why they have a higher incidence of polyamory than the general population. And just in general, all sorts of weirdness seems to correlate with rationality. So I think in general, they're a group that is better off trying to find things out for themselves than just taking the received wisdom even if the received wisdom is better for the vast majority of the population. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think there's like a bit of a process that happens, right? You know, like the idea, like the pre-trans fallacy. Mm, what is that one? The idea that the state of being like before a transformation can resemble the state of being after a transformation. People often compare like the enlightened Buddha to a child, but really there's a lot of difference between the enlightened Buddha and the child, even though they resemble each other superficially. Mm-hmm rediscovering traditional wisdom, I think there's a, there's a pre-trans fallacy. Like the pre-state is just someone who's just, um, you know, these crazy polyamorous people, like they're all nuts. And clearly it's like better to do it this way. The pre, like the conservative person basically who hasn't thought about it too much. And then there's the like, um, you know, the state of like the journey where you're going being polyamorous and checking out all kinds of different things and seeing it works for yourself. And then in a lot of cases that leads back to like, oh, actually the received wisdom the, the, the received tradition had a lot of wisdom in it that I didn't realize before. Like that final state can look a lot like the initial state, but they're actually completely different because one is before the journey and one's after the journey. I see. So I'm assuming that you're describing post-rationalism. It seems very much like rationalism the way I understand it, though. Is that not your understanding of rationalism? Uh, I guess I still see them as different. I, I'm kind of, hmm. 
I, mean, I, I see what you're saying. I, I guess this is why I don't see post-rationalism as being like, I don't see it as being a turn. I see it as being kind of more of a completion of rationalism, which is rationalism mm -hmm. taken to its logical conclusions. So maybe some rationalists, you know, are at that place where they're seeing the rationality in all things and not putting too much emphasis on the process of rational thought itself. But I guess, you know, like I said, I, I, think, the dis I think the distinction is important, even if it's a we consider a distinction between two different kinds of rationalism. I, I, I see it as being a meaningful distinction. I definitely felt more like that when I was in my early years of rationality, as you're saying, the very much sticking closer to the everything must be analyzed and optimized. And honestly, rationalism, even though it has all this inherent in it, all this talk about emotions and they're valuable and they're important to the entire process of being human, despite the fact that that's in the writing, it still gives off extreme Spock vibes. And this is despite the fact that like the straw Vulcan <laughs> was coined and attacked as a stupid way to be a rationalist from the start. And yet people who adopt rationality, especially early on, often do feel very Vulcan-like in their vibes. Whereas post-rationalist kind of feel like rationalists with a lot more hippie mixed in. Maybe it's mostly a vibes-based thing that people move into over time. That first they get the dose of finding this tool and using it on everything and finding out where it's great and where it's applicable and then slowly starting to learn its limits and using it in more subtle ways and less uh, less everything must be hit with this kind of ways. Sometimes it feels like the hippie stuff is getting fed in from the bottom. Like it's not super penetrating the central arguments. Like I guess a vibe camp, I, even though it definitely felt like very much the post-rationalist vibe and it felt very hippie-ish for sure. So I was kind of surprised, like, the number of people I talked to who still were very much making what I would consider to be uh, rationalist arguments. What sort of rationalist arguments were you surprised by? Utilitarian arguments. Okay, a, a lot of people were making the argument that um, human endeavor should be oriented towards making human life happier and easier at the expense of negative emotion, which, which I, I very much disagree with. And that tech, we should use technologies to that end. All that I, I very much disagree with. I think that's totally in the rationalist paradigm. And also some very, like, the godlike AI solving our problems argument, which I consider to be very rationalist. Mm, I'll and, cop that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead. No, I mean, I, I love disagreeing with people. It's super fun. And I guess also, like, a kind of an, you know, exuberance around transhumanism. Just an exuberance around, like, technology as the means to solving our problems. To, to me, that that's very rationalist. Because it, it's, like, technology is, like, the ultimate, like, crystallization of, like, the human rational faculty with, with without a lot of input from the other parts of reality a lot of the time. Very tech exuberant culture like that, to me, that strikes me as very rationalist, not super post-rationalist. There's a lot of things that, you know, rationalists care about. If you want to, you could even use like utils or hedons, right? In doing something like the long form way and not taking the technological shortcut. I think it, it requires a lot of slack in life though, to be able to do that. You know, like if um, you want some outdoor furniture or something, you know, you can go to the store and buy it, or you can make it all yourself. You can even chop down your own trees and do it, you know, the really hardcore long way. And there's something super gratifying about standing at the end of your finished product and being like, I did this and it took me 200 hours to do it versus like I got I just got back from the store and here it is right but you kind of need the benefits that other technology gives you to have like the shortcuts in your life to have the time to do that you wouldn't have time to make your own furniture if you also had to grow your own food and sew your own clothes and all that yeah but i do think that there's something like you know to, to solve all your problems that way and then like what would you do with all your free time if everything was taken care of that easily right yeah i think you know i'm not against technology like i, I use technology all the time and i think it's it's necessary for a lot of things but i guess for me technology is more for me, like the idea of um, bringing about human happiness through technology or like, hmm. 
No, I think I agree with you that technology can solve material problems, but it doesn't solve happiness, meaning, fulfillment type problems. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Do you think we've lost something because of the overuse of technology? I think we've really weakened the narrative element of life. Like, I think a, a lot of us are experiencing less interesting stories as we're spending a lot of time in this this mode, this, this mode that's very technological and very um, kind of data-driven, rational thought. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, there's something about just being in that mode, it, it's, it's very deadening. What sorts of interesting stories are we missing out on in our lives? I, mean, I think something like VibeCamp is great because I think it, it brings back a lot of the, um, it, it's, it's, it's a site where it's easy for stories to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, really good stories. They always involve conflict or conflict, or they tend to involve conflict, pain, tragedy, difficulty, definitely a lot of in-person interaction, romance. I think these are some elements of life that don't often don't often enter in in some of what I see as a rationalist thinking. And I don't think they're very conducive to that kind of thinking. I don't think it's just, okay, we need like the rationalist mindset and we need to bring in more, bring in more tragedy and enter it into the equation. Like, I think it's just, <laughs> they just, they just don't fit that well. Those things we used to just run up against those in our daily lives back when we had all these other problems that technology couldn't fix. Now that technology has fixed those, we just don't run into those situations naturally anymore. I don't know. Do you think, the solution is to introduce them, I don't want to say artificially, but through an act of human artifice, because we, we just don't run into how are we going to get that tree down or why are you making eyes at my partner kind of problems nowadays because <laughs> we've fixed all that. Um, I don't know that we have really fixed them. I, I think in a lot of cases, our lives have become smaller because that's that's the easier path, I think, for a lot of people. It is easier to, to, to spend your day solving problems and, and being surrounded by technology, I think. I think like going to vibe camp and like, um, I don't know, feeling awkward around other people or like trying to connect or like, or like trying to meet somebody and having it not like, I feel like at vibe camp, there's when, when you're, when you're in a situation like that, problems just emerge naturally. And I think any situation where those kinds of problems or those kinds of experiences aren't emerging, it just shows that something in, in one's life needs to change. Do you think it would help a lot if we, got rid of quite so many strict regulations on behavior and maybe forced ourselves to have a lot more humans in our daily lives. Yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds quite important. Yeah, I think a lot of these like strict regulations on behavior, like cancel culture and stuff like that, they do represent kind of as you call it naive a sort of naive rationalism that's similar to the socialist mentality. Like, you know, we can take like the moral space as well as the economic space, but in this case the moral space and figure out how it works and implement the correct rules and just get everyone to follow them. And that'll solve our problems. And we all probably agree that it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. On the plus side, I think rationalists avoided that particular pitfall. I don't think you get a lot of rationalists at the helm of the whatever Twitter pylons on people and stuff. Why do you guys think that is? I mean, it seems rationalists did evade a few pitfalls of what I would kind of associate with a rationalist kind of thinking in contemporary society. Part of me wants to say that's because the, the approach has merit that works, but, uh, <laughs> There might be, you know, like a sort of like techno optimism thing. Like, I also think that technology is on the on the path towards longevity slash indefinite longevity. And I think that's probably a good thing because I think being alive is great. And I want people to be alive for longer. I think that we that there has been a pretty, pretty solid understanding from the beginning that like, it's not like this cure all that can solve everything. And even if you could, there might be virtue to doing it the other way. Uh, I keep using the word virtue. There might be or subtle benefits and hidden hidden upsides doing things the long way. You know, uh, there was a thought experiment in uh, 
I forget which it might've been uh, the moral landscape. One of Sam Harris's books. Imagine if there's a pill that could cure grief. Do you take it the instant that your loved one dies? Do you take it the week before just in case? <laughs> um, oh my God. And so, you know, like if this was, if this was a piece of technology that we had, uh, it's not at all clear that while the body is still warm, you should just totally feel at peace with the, everything. Right. Maybe, maybe there is uh, well, in fact, there, there probably definitely is some huge benefit just from the way we're wired as human beings to feel that sort of pain. I was wondering between the relationship between that and like uh, wire headers, right? Which I guess if you're going to say wire headers, you would definitely call those people rationalists, but you might call hedonists and other forms of utilitarianism that are like all that matters that everyone feels as good as possible all the time. And I, I certainly don't think that that's the case. And I don't think that's a very popular opinion among rationalists, but it's not as far from unheard of. I think a large part of the reason that rationalists avoided those sort of restrictions on what you can say and and how you can behave is just due to founder effects. Like right from the very beginning, Eliezer said that all ideas should be approachable because you can't be hurt by an idea. And if an idea is wrong, the best way to find out is to interrogate it and see that it is wrong. One of his lines that I like most out of anything is that argument gets counter argument does not get bullet never, ever, ever, forever. Scott Alexander, who was the next big light after Yudkowsky, like took up the same mantle where he's willing to tolerate people who hate him and who he finds repulsive as long as they are civil enough that you can have a conversation with them and you talk about the ideas and show why their ideas are bad or what the bad effects of them are. And that sort of respect for being able to approach any idea and talk about it in a way that doesn't validate the idea just because you're entertaining it for argument purposes has been really useful in allowing us to have a lot of discourse and not stifling people. I personally think everybody has the right to be wrong because you don't know if you're wrong. The best way to find out is to be wrong and work through it. You know, you you can't just accept somebody else's word for what's right and wrong. Yeah, this is so interesting. I, I guess this is where um, this is where rationalism seems like a little bit self contradictory to me. Maybe like Yukowski and the other founders had a lot of wisdom and um, really championing free speech and seeing the implicit wisdom in um, that that mechanism, mm-hmm. and and in free markets also, like the, the idea like when no single mind coming up with great ideas is going to be better than um, the emergent benefits that come from putting lots of ideas together and letting them interact with these mechanisms. So there's, there, there's a real um, respect there for kind of these decentralized systems and for their superiority a lot of the time over or their, their practical superiority over, or I guess their, their higher level of rationality even above like any mind coming up with good ideas on its own. Mm-hmm. Like to me that, but to me that's, that's like kind of the exact argument against techno optimism, hmm. like a medical technology, for example. Like it's just it's just a really good idea being thrown into a complex system, and you don't really know the consequences of that idea are just just so so much beyond what anyone can conceptualize. But then I, I see a lot of and it's not just in the rational commu- rationalist community, but I see a lot of um, say the medical techno optimist position. It's just basically you know like we've we know this drug works, we know how it works, we've we've tested the side effects. And to me, that's just, it's just, it's an elevation of the human rational faculty above really the power of uh, the inherent nature of decentralized systems, like how they, they evade our, our ability to fully understand them. To, to me, there's a contradiction there. It, I don't know. It, does, does, does that make sense? It does. I think there's some specific tactics or tools that really are useful, though. Like antibiotics really do work and really have saved a lot of people. 
even if the overall biological system of our bodies is incredibly complex and we can't suss out all the details and how to optimize it, there are a few things we can do. Like I, I'd be dead right now if it wasn't for a surgery I got a few years ago. I mean, yeah, antibiotics, antibiotics were not anyone's idea. They're kind of fungus that naturally combat bacteria and they were discovered by accident. Yeah, but someone had to find them and then we have big factories to put them into pill form. Yeah, yeah. And all that's great. Like there's there's definitely a powerful element of human rationality there. But like this, this, this belief that we're gonna, in the next few decades, figure out how to infinitely extend human life. To, like, like just, I don't know, just some, some of these, these, and, and that's going to work and it's going to have great side, like it's not going to have side effects. Like to me that that's just, there, there, there's a real, there's a real. If we don't extend human life indefinitely, that'd be sad. But are you saying that it's bad to try? No, maybe, maybe I'm not. Maybe it's bad to try without really, you know, this is kind of analogous to the alignment problem in AI, but it's like, this has a lot of ways where it could go terribly. We should really be sure we're blockading against all of those before we run forward with this, rather than just saying, nope, we'll, we'll do it, and then we'll figure out the problems later. Antibiotics are a good example of maybe an, of an ambiguous good. Like, I've had antibiotics to treat infections before, at least one case where I actually needed it, but they are definitely overprescribed. And that leads to, you know, like superbugs that will no doubt cause gigantic problems. They're, they're already big problems, but I think they're, they're going to be bigger problems down the road. Sure, but no one's going to be forced to take life-extending drugs if they don't want them. No, I mean, that, that's that's a fair point. But, you know, they might still be hit with the side effects, just like even if you never took antibiotics, you might still get hit with the, the superbug that, you know, is born out of them, right? You know, but there are like, I think there are less ambiguous goods. I, I wore glasses for 10, 15 years until I had scientists cut my corneas off, or well, rather cor- cut, <laughs> cut them partially off and then blast lasers into my skull for five minutes. It's hard to see the downside to being able to see clearly most of the time. Hey, there's probably a metaphor for real life there somewhere. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... I, I do think that the life extension one is is one of those cases where it seems all too easy to imagine all the terrible ways that this could fall out. Now that I think about it, I don't actually see a lot of conversation about that. I think people kind of just assume those problems will solve themselves, which they might, but it might be 100 million dead first, you know? Is it that they don't talk about the societal problems? Or they don't talk about the medical problems, like the way it could go wrong medically? I think more of societally. And I, I haven't spent a lot of time digging into like longevity scholarship, but... I mentioned earlier, like the, the inequality of the initial distribution will probably be a problem, right? I have heard conversations about that, but I think that's just true with every new, techn- new technology. Yeah. And so, some of them percolate a lot faster than others. I'm not sure how much one can reasonably care about the medical downsides of life extension, because in the absolute worst case scenario, you're dead, which is what the default outcome is anyway. If we don't get life extension, I'm dead. So... If the worst side effect is death, I'm not any worse off. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm just I'm just skeptical that this kind of thing will ever be possible. But um, I mean, the, the societal downsides seem significant to me. I understand what you're saying, but we're also getting way far off topic. Okay, okay. Well, I, but I, I agree. Maybe it's off topic, but I do like specifics as to help illustrate larger points. Where do you want to jump back to then? Actually, I have a thing that I dislike about post-rationality. It's a bomb I want to throw into the conversation at any rate. What's up with the woo? <laughs> um, <laughs> can, okay. I ta- can I take a total, like, just stab in the dark at this? Yeah. I, I suspect it's probably something to do with, like, trying out... It, it, it's the it's the wider net, right? We've got these established ways of doing stuff where there might be inadequacies there that we haven't seen because we're so, we're so sure that it, this is the right way to do it. So let's try some of the other stuff. Is that sort of on track? Inyash, it might help if you listed some examples of the woo. I guess astrology is coming back. 
tarot readings. Uh, sometimes I hear things about like auras. Like I understand trying to tap into your emotions and getting the vibes of an area, but to me that feels very much like a what is the ambient psychological and so social forces in in play here. Whereas when some people talk about woo, it sounds like they literally think, oh my God, the discussion about egregores, I'm like, oh my, these are not thinking entities. What are you people even talking about? What are it's you a memeplex. As far as I can tell, it's taking a memeplex and giving it agency. And I don't know why you would do that. Yeah, woo stuff, I find, since I came out of a fundamentalist religion where we very much believed that God took a personal interest in every bit of our daily lives and did miracles to the modern day, like... I developed a distinct allergy to any sort of magic exists sort of stuff. And a lot of it feels like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I don't think you're far off. I think that is, I I, I would say I see kind of two woo streams. Like I would see a woo stream that's like um, literally positing like a spiritual reality. And there's a woo stream that's more like when we um, do tarot cards, we're not actually accessing any kind of a, soothsaying we're just uh the, the images and the symbolism can be evocative creatively evocative and help us solve our problems in different ways or, oh yeah so and that's that stuff is great i once had someone read my uh tarot using a cards against humanity deck and it was fucking amazing i was like <laughs> this is awesome how human psychology works and the fact that you're an amazing storyteller that you can use this deck to do that just shines a great light on you and i almost had to flip the table and walk away because of how accurate it seemed I, I was quite upset. Yeah, it, it, the second stream I'm okay with, but like, what, what's with the magic stuff? <laughs> yeah, I mean, hmm. So I guess we, I mean, I'd ask why, like, why wouldn't there be magic stuff? Like, what, like, what about it bothers you? Or I know you said you came from a kind of a fundamentalist. Uh, yeah, I came from a fundamentalist religion, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, wow. So part of getting out of that was just seeing how there is no actual magic in the real world. So all these people have been lying to me my entire life. It just seems extremely strange that a person who holds on to some part of the rationalist viewpoint would entertain ideas like actual literal magic existing, like beyond physics forces that are impossible in theory. Okay. I mean, okay, I guess where I would uh, defend that viewpoint. I think it's a pre-trans thing again. You're home at the beginning of the journey, then you go on a journey, then you come home again. So like the home at the beginning of the journey is like, we're in a civilization, everybody is Christian, and that's just like the default position and no one ever questions it. And so, you know, you can have like people who are just religious and have never questioned it. And like, that's one position. And then like you go on a journey where you're like a new atheist or a secular person and you're living life that way. I mean, like you're a rationalist. So we're in the rationalist paradigm now. And then you get into the post-rationalist paradigm where you're like, oh, there's rationality in all these things that I never would have thought of as rational. One way of going from there is like when we're starting to like um, rehabilitate these spiritual practices from a still like non-spiritualist perspective, like we we're just talking about. But I think another direction would be to start to say like, well, how do I know that magic doesn't exist? There's a lot that we don't understand about the universe. There's enough that we do understand that we know this particular thing that the people are saying is bullshit, though. I don't know. I mean... I don't know. I mean, there, like, there's some stuff that could be considered magic that seems possible. I guess I think for a lot of people, like whether it's literally true or metaphorically true, can be kind of um, a fine line. Like I think with egregores, people are often talking about it metaphorically. But yeah. But I mean, I don't know. It, it doesn't. It doesn't seem obvious to me that. Hmm. It doesn't seem obvious to me that all that exists in the universe is is material. I think it's important to make sure that. There's no um, mistaking, distinguishing between like what one might call like placebo mancy versus like, I don't know, actual mancy. 
Um, <laughs> you know, so like if you're, you know, cause I, I know one or two self alleged, I guess that might call themselves wizards. One or two Davids actually, who are both, who, who, who might call themselves wizards <laughs> and, right. uh, neither of them, well, one of them is harder to pin down, but the other one doesn't think he's doing real magic. He, he, he's, he's straight up like, no, man, this is, this is a tool. You know, it's like a self-help tool. I don't think this is one of his spells. I'm not, I'm not trying to be disparaging. I'm trying to be playful about it, but you know, like positive visualization could be seen as a placebo mancy tool. It, it's just to kind of get you in a better headspace about facing a problem or something. Right. And that might actually have more positive outcomes because he went in with a more positive mindset, but that doesn't mean that if he had stirred the pot counterclockwise instead of clockwise, it wouldn't have worked. I, I guess I want to make sure because it, it's, I think it's easy to kind of, um, I don't know, accidentally Mott and Bailey ourselves there. Okay. I think there's like a lot of stuff we got to be careful about here. Cause I definitely agree with you that like some aspects of like the embrace of astrology and crystals and all this, like, I think sometimes people just get into a mindset or have seen to be a mindset where it's just, you just kind of start accepting everything. That's kind of woo. Like just any idea that people throw mm-hmm. out there and just cause it's, appealing um and i think there is danger to that but i I would say also like uh, i would definitely like be very cautious about making any kind of statements about what's ultimately possible or not possible like we've been just because we've been so wrong about this we've been so wrong about this in human history and like we have this this perspective on reality now you know in the 21st century and and it's just you know if you take a historical perspective you just got to be able to say like this perspective we have now about what's real and what's not real it's going to be so it's going to look so wrong in a thousand years like it's going to look ridiculous like and even like okay here's a woo idea from the 19th century there's these crazy this crazy guy this quack and a few fringe people who think that um tiny invisible creatures make you sick <laughs> totally woo idea yeah in the 19th century every rational thinking secular person believed that the universe had always existed and would always exist and runs like a clockwork there's a catholic priest who said no it all started from one tiny dot that exploded outwards that, w- that was considered to be a very theological idea. That was considered to be trying to sneak religion into science. Now it's viewed as secular, but it, we've, been, we've been quite wrong, you know, about what's woo and what's not woo. I love those examples. I do think that the trend of history, though, is that we're, we're trending less wrong. But we're, we're not necessarily trending less woo. Or anything you might think about quantum physics, it's the, it's the more woo paradigm than Newtonian. Oh, 100%. I guess the, the steps have always been in a direction more towards physicalism, but it seems unlikely especially given the lessons of history that we'll look back in a hundred years and be like, Oh, the astrologers were right. We just didn't know how to measure it all this time. Unless, you know, astrology is going to be redefined in the next century. I think we might find that thought acts on reality in ways that um, aren't currently accounted for in the materialist framework. That's the young yin that you mentioned earlier. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I personally have found myself recently getting much more in touch with my spirituality for whatever that word might mean. Um, I'm finding value in ritual and in some spiritual emotion set, because I want to call it a slightly different thing from a mindset. But the thing that worries me isn't using spirituality and metaphysics in ways that can help you grow and, and become more in touch with yourself emotionally. It's more along the lines of, I don't know. I, I now I feel like an asshole saying other people are too stupid to use these tools, but <laughs> like it, it, it seriously makes me scared about people falling back into religions and other sorts of beliefs that are just held because they're popular and fun. I think astrology is a great example of that because, as posited, that you know the location of the stars when you're born. Or not even the location of the stars, because they don't really move. The location of where the Earth is around the sun when you're born makes this huge difference on everything. It's kind of ridiculous, and I don't I don't want to see that sort of thinking 
taking over people's minds and making them unable to interact with the real world in a coherent way. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I definitely think like believing in something because it's popular and fun is not a good reason to believe in something. And I have seen a lot of people I know kind of fall into what almost seems to be just like a pattern of credulity where they're just, Mm -hmm. they're just kind of believing anything that kind of sounds good and is consistent with what they already believe. And it just, that just can become just such like a negative feedback loop of like conspiracy theories and spiritual beliefs. And I've just seen it almost like eat up people's brains. Yeah. As much as rationalism has the failure mode of getting too Spock-like and rational and computeristic, post-rationalism has this failure mode of getting too falling into that thing that we were just talking about. And I guess I'm more scared of the latter than the former, but they're probably both pretty bad and I should be equally scared of both of them. I mean, you bring up a really good point. That that's really interesting. I didn't even I didn't really think of that as a possible failure mode of the post-rationalist because I, I was more thinking of some of my um I guess I'd call them like spiritual conspiracy theory friends who mm-hmm. don't really identify with post-rationalism, but that's really interesting that like that tendency could maybe be a risk for for the post-rationalists. And I think I'm actually gonna think about that. But having now identified that risk, I feel slightly better because seeing a risk makes it easier to avoid that risk. I can just tell people, hey, let's not fall into this particular hole. Post-rationality is great as long as we, uh, we're aware that this can happen. Yeah, I think articulating it is helpful. And, and even like just asking people why they believe things, right? like, yeah. because it feels good probably isn't a good enough reason. At least if someone is going to believe something because it feels good to be aware of it. Yeah. From the article that I was recommended, one of the most interesting things I pulled out was the post-rationalists have been disillusioned by rationality because they're questioning, how can we effectively and altruistically advocate for the good life of others when we ourselves aren't sure what the good life even means? Do you think post-rationality is trying to find what the good life means? And what does the good life mean, if you have an answer for that? Huh, the good life. (laughs) That's a big question. That's a big question. I think, you know, that's like a Socratic term, right? Uh, Which part of me as a post-rationalist, I really like that because it's getting back to um, the ancients. Uh, But in a way, I also don't like it. Like, I feel like um, the ancient Greeks are kind of the the original rationalists. So to me, that seems like there's something about that framing, like the word good, you know, just just something very tepid about it. Maybe part of the problem with the framing is it acts like like there isn't an answer. I would would say um, I'd want to live a life that's a great story. Oh, nice. I love that. I, my uncle, he's telling me a couple stories about when he, in his wild and reckless youth. And I was like, that sounds made up. Not that I'm accusing <laughs> him of making it up, but I love that it sounds made up. You live, you live the kind of life that it sounds like it would make a great story. And I, th- I think that's actually a really cool way to frame it. I really like that too. Living a life that sounds made up. <laughs> <laughs> that, that does sound like quite something to aspire for. Last two things. How does post-rationalism inform the novel that you're writing right now? What makes it post-rationalist? The novel I'm writing right now, um, it's very much about like uh, kind of what we're talking about as being a lot of the, the mainstream tendencies around um, moralism and socialism and this kind of idea that we can, we can transcend human nature in all kinds of different ways. And I think my book is ultimately pretty skeptical of that. Yeah. That's all awesome. Right. I have a quick question for you, Inyash. Did, did rationalism inform what lies dreaming at all? Oh, that's an interesting question. That was his published uh, book-length novel. It's so cool. Oh, thank you. I don't think so. It informed it in the fact that it informed who I am and what I care about. In that regard, yes, it fed into me, and so it fed into the book. But directly, no, I don't think there was any any direct rationalism in it. Other than like the fact that 
people aren't stupid in the book. I do my best. Yeah. Well, I mean, because well, I mean, a lot of times, like, you need stupid characters because you need a plot to happen. Or rather, writers think that. But it's just, it's harder actually to write a plot with people doing things for reasons that make sense rather than like, well, just because this would make a conflict for us, for the hero to solve or whatever, right? Right. Yeah. But I, I don't know if crossing the hurdle of like having a good, reasonable story, if we're going to say that counts as, as rationally informed, that might be taking too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> right. If it's a good story, it's obviously a rational story. Obviously. Oh, yeah. I forgot to mention that there's that there's the, the get out of jail slash trump card that rationality has like that anything that actually works just gets subsumed into rationality <laughs> right. so like any, anything that the that you know post-rationalists or any other uh group comes up with that turns out to have lots of positive impact the rationalists just steal and say that's part of our thing now but not steal rather they will again they'll they'll, they'll assimilate right? lovingly adopt yeah lovingly adopt and and you know with credit and stuff too it's not a bad strategy if the strategy at the end of the day is like to win at whatever it is you're trying to accomplish everything from living a good life to becoming immortal. If, if your goal is to win, then yeah, you're going to take all the all the techniques you can from everywhere that you can. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Because I, like I said, I Inyash went to Vibe Camp. We got back, what, three weeks ago? They did a live podcast episode there where they talked briefly with somebody, or like they talked briefly about post-rationalism. That was my first time really hearing about it. I, I was curious what the mindset was and uh, having heard it, I love it. This is great. <laughs> cool. I, I, I think there's a lot of value there. One last thing before we go, what is your Substack and what do you talk about on it? Yes, my Substack is analogfutures.substack.com. It's uh, and my most recent article is about ChatGPT, comparing the complexity of ChatGPT and the human brain and basically arguing that strong general intelligence is very very far away. Oh, all right, very on topic for the rationalist community. Yeah. Very excited to read that actually. Cool. Thank you again. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you guys. I really enjoyed this too. This helped me articulate some stuff that's been in the back of my head. That's one of the benefits of conversation. Mm-hmm. On a last kind of thrown in note, you mentioned it's like the benefits of human interaction and stuff that might be overshadowed by like kind of the atomization of society. I've been working from home full time for three or four years. And I'm finding that's actually like a huge problem is like just not being around people is impacting me negatively. So I'm trying to like force my, my outside of work life into more physically social events. It's Sounds great on paper. Hey, you don't have to go out of the house and have to do stuff, but actually it sucks. Yeah. It's, it's one of those, uh, I mean, it's not bad. I, I've got it, you know, I've got it really good. It's just, it turns out that there is there is a benefit that's hard to articulate that in advance that might not have predicted. Totally. It's you know, the, the Zgeist right now is getting back into person. Right. Mm-hmm. I think the option's great. Anyway, thanks again. This is, this is a really good time. This was great. And if you're ever in the Denver area, let us know. We'll get coffee or something. Amazing. I'll totally take you off on that. Perfect. Sweet. Bye. All right, Stephen, it's time for the shorter half of the show. Yeah, super short, actually, probably this one. We got two short, less long posts. And we have the Guild the Rose promotion that we do every episode as well now, yes? Of course. Let's do that first, because you specifically mentioned one of the Davids in the post-rationalist <laughs> discourse. That David is David Youssef, who uh, does do wizardry or something like it. And he is one of the founding members of the Guild of the Rose. So if you want to upgrade your rationalism skills, including your post-rationalism magic-doing skills, you can go over to the Guild of the Rose and see what David has in store for you. You know, I can't tell him it's not working. You know, he's worked as he's wizarded, wizarded, wizardry. He's magicked his way into uh, our good graces and and uh, running a a rationalist dojo, yeah, um, and a major rationalist organization that helps the peoples. That's right. And the one of the main things they're working on in July, public speaking, which is something I used to be terrified of uh, when I was younger. 
I think it's probably probably just podcasting. Now I am just nonchalant about it. I can talk in front of a crowd of as big as I can get. You know, if it's, mm-hmm. a, if it's a work group of 50 people, I'm not too shy. I don't jump for the opportunity, but I'm fine with it. Very common phobia, at least um, element of nervousness for, pe- nervousness for people. But there are techniques to overcome it. And I would spoil some of my some of my guesses of what works for me, but instead I'll just point you guys at Guild of the Rose because I'll learn the mental and physical techniques to eliminate nervousness and present yourself as well in a public speaking context. Check that out. Absolutely. Sounds like they finish out the course with a round of improvised lightning talks. So you get to practice what they have taught you. You did the um, public speaking thing. Uh, oh, Toastmasters. Toastmasters, that's right. That helped a ton. I was only there for five cla- uh, classes, and you're supposed to take 10 in their introductory course. And even just those five helped a lot. I think all it really takes, well, actually, I know this isn't all it really takes, but I think one element is just doing it and realizing you're not dead afterwards. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, to learn the rest, uh, check out the Good of the Rose. Absolutely. All right, on to the less wrong posts. I always like the ones that are like seemingly out of nowhere because you can tell they're just on his mind. Mm-hmm. And so in the in that context, you know, we were talking like in the middle of like the human use of words uh, sequence. There's a post on <laughs> prediction markets. Yeah. Buy now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> this is taking place during the first Obama campaign before anybody knew that he was going to be a president. So <sighs> just all long time ago now. Remember those days? <laughs> I do remember is those it days. Me? Or were things like simpler and I think better? Um, Definitely simpler. I well, I mean, sure, the world has gotten more complex and a bit more perilous, uh, more than a bit more perilous, honestly. So I would say simpler, better. Yeah, yeah, basically better, too, because this was before everyone was on social media all the time. It's not even before Twitter. <laughs> Is it? I'm not yeah, sure no, no, Twitter, Twitter did out, exist in 2008. Twitter existed before this campaign. I see. Well, I mean, it, it hadn't uh, probably hadn't got its first person fired yet. Today, we're talking about prediction markets. By now, forever, hold your peace. At the time of writing, well, actually, I think it changed between writing and when he first wrote the sentence, but it was like 53, 53 to 40, 47 with Hillary in favor. If Hillary over Obama during the Democratic primaries. Right. Isn't that crazy to think that she ran against him? Like, oh, yeah. and, man, times. And, it's been, it's and been ages. Had, <laughs> and had a solid chance of beating him. Yeah, for, for a while. It seemed like it was going to go that way. Um, mm-hmm. There was a market called Intrade, and you could put $250 on it immediately. I'm sure you remember this, but there was a lot of people going back and forth as in like, Hillary is absolutely going to win. Obama doesn't have a chance or no, Obama's going to take this. Hillary is a total sucker. There was people with very strong opinions on both sides, even though the polls were like 53 to 47. Eliezer is saying, look, you can put $250 on this right now. If you think Hillary's going to do better than the polls on Super Tuesday, not, not even like going to win, just do better than the polls on Super Tuesday, and you're going to sneer afterwards and say that Intrade was just tracking the polls, then buy Hillary now. If you think that Obama is going to do better than the polls on Super Tuesday, and you're going to gloat about how prediction markets didn't call this surprise in advance, buy Obama now. If you don't do either, then clearly you do not really believe that you know anything the prediction markets don't. I like that. I mean, and he points out it's free money. You yeah. know, if, you, if you actually have any, if you have confidence in this, just get your free money. The point is not that prediction markets are good predictor, but that they are the best predictor. If you think you can do better, why ain't you rich? Any person, group, or method that does better can pump money out of prediction markets. Was this the beginning of the put money on your beliefs to 
actually feel how confident you are in them. Are you saying it's the first time someone said, want to bet? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I'm saying this is the first time prediction markets were, yeah, okay, never mind. I take it back. That's a dumb question. But it might be, I think it was among the first time that uh, people were doing this online on the internet with uh, organizational backing. I mean, it, it became a norm in the rationalist community at some point, and it certainly wasn't in the beginning because I, like every other sane adult at the time, was like, no, I don't bet money on things. That's just gambling and dumb. I hear that all the time with people, and like they, they, they say it like it's some like, oh, I don't, I don't gamble. And it's like, it's not gambling if you think you're right. Like, I mean, it technically is, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's not poker. You know, it's not roulette. There's a lot of cultural antibodies against being sucked into gambling, and I think that's good overall. But putting money on your beliefs to make them pay rent and to show and to feel how that uncertainty actually feels like when something, even just $20 is on the line, is uh, I, I think that's a good thing. And I think there's a lot of inferential distance to cover to get people to see why this is a good thing and this shouldn't be triggered by their anti-gambling antibodies. Yeah, I think my, my main thing is I've, I've seen that counter-argument used too much. People are like making shit up and it's like, I'll bet mm -hmm. you 10 bucks, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, I don't gamble. And it's like, then, then you don't get to have, like, then, I don't know, you get to have an opinion. I just, I always found that like, it's just people's get out of jail free card for just being able to say whatever they want without being able to put their money where their mouth is. Yeah, and it's like, all right, yeah. let's not even do money. Like, let's just bet lunch, you know, you know, like I'm not even Some empanadas. Yeah. Like, or, or that, you know, you have to message the the group that you were wrong. Right. So we do that on the discord and there's, there's mm -hmm. often some, some small amount of money involved, but I think the important thing is just calibration and the like, yes, I was actually wrong here. Yeah. Um, anyway, i that, that got me, uh, hyped up cause well, it's interesting. So in trade was shut down in 2012. Uh, yeah, the, the US, US said this, the US regulators said this is gambling. And with all the uh, US money gone, they couldn't keep it going. I hate that. It's so dumb. Yeah. You're allowed to bet on sports, you're allowed to bet in Vegas, but you can't just bet. It's your fucking money. And it's a fucking prediction market. I, it, It's not that it was gambling that it was shut down. It's because it was a prediction market. And the US government has a policy against prediction markets. Yeah. I think that they used the uh, the fact that one question out of like 200 on the original prediction market that Robin Hansen and, and company set up, uh, one of them had to do with like, when is the next terrorist attack going to happen? Oh, and yeah, they, I remember They that. lost their shit. But I, I think that was just convenience. I think they didn't like the idea in the first place. But they do not want to know too, too precisely what is going to happen and what people think is going to happen because that makes it harder to do the signaling game. The, oh, I know Obama's going to win game. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah. there was one called... Uh, predicted i think it, that's now out too um but they had a thing but they're matching if you put in 20 bucks they just match it and i did that huh. put in 20 bucks they matched yeah. it and then i don't think i bet anything and then after like a month i was able i was able to take all the money out and they sent me two hats oh. so i'd be kind of i haven't checked but i'd be surprised if they're still in business because i got 20 bucks and a free hat but <laughs> or two free hats <laughs> but uh yeah. anyway do you want to move on to the next one here back into the uh let's do that use for language Absolutely. Similarity clusters. I think we're getting closer and closer to, was Scott Alexander the first one to put it? Uh, categories are made for the man, not man for the category. That is one of Scott Alexander's posts. Yep. And like, it's, it's fun how many of these uh, in the human use of language sequence gesture towards that, you know, that mm -hmm. awesome t-shirt slogan, mm -hmm. uh, but don't quite put it that succinctly. This is another example of that one. Wasn't it just last episode that you brought up the whole featherless biped is a man and the the dude Dionysus? Was it? Yeah. Now, now I'm wondering. I'm sure I must have just uh, absorbed that knowledge from this post back when I read it. I don't know if I actually ever heard it anywhere else. Now that I think about it, but it is kind of funny because I was like, I heard somewhere. I could have sworn, and then here it is. 
and I visualized a dead chicken plucked, and you were like, yeah, no, there's just, just a plucked chicken running around. I'm like, oh, God, I'm cold. <laughs> Why'd you take my feathers? That kind of stings. Oh, God. Poor, poor chicken. Well, at the very least, it doesn't say whether or not the, the chicken was alive in this anecdote. But this, this, so this was what I said last, last episode was like, uh, you know, if, if a human is a featherless biped, then, you know, you can, you can set down a plucked chicken and be like, look, behold, Plato's man. And, yeah. uh, they're like, oh, broad, broad nails. That That's the difference. Yeah. 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 Uh, Eliezer points out that, uh, you know, so long as you don't happen to be near a plucked chicken saying, look for featherless bipeds may serve to pick out a few dozen of the particular things that are humans, like in your environment. And that once the definition featherless biped has been bound to some particular featherless bipeds, you can look over the group and begin harvesting some of the other characteristics they share in common. And he goes on to list a whole bunch of things like uses tools to make more complex tools and creates fission reactions to harvest its energy and <laughs> has 23 do- uh, DNA chromosomes, that kind of stuff. Syntactic language. And, it, you know, it's one of those things like, and I get it, you know, it's just because this is just hammering home the point that definitions aren't the way to like make a point about things in reality. Because mm-hmm. it's like you can, you can point to all the things that make a human a human and then shave a chimp and be like, look, all the things you talked about. Fingers, toes, broad nails, the works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it that's just that's not how categories are made for in our in our minds, and that's not how they work in reality. Yeah, and I really like his point that actually featherless biped works fine because like it points at a cluster, and you can keep looking at that cluster and see other things they have similar. So it was it was more of a pointer to get you started looking at things rather than a strict definition. Yeah, and I mean, this is how children learn language. You know, you they see the the fluffy little animal, and they're like, and you say doggy, and they're like, oh, doggy. And then they see a cat, and they're like, no, they're doggy. And they're like, no, that's actually a cat. And then the, the kid has to think, okay, it's a lot like a dog, four legs, tail. Okay, no muzzle, or no, like, you know, it's got a flat snout, and its ears are different. Okay, so that's that's a cat, this one's a dog. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, this is, that's a horse, though. That's different than both of them. But like, you know, we're, we're totally capable of, of drawing, uh, superficial quick definitions and having them basically yeah. work, but not like being totally tripped up when something similar comes along. I love that he puts in parentheses, if Aristotelian logic were a good model of human psychology, the Platonists, Platonists? Platonists is how I heard it. Platonists? Okay. The Platonists would have looked at the plucked chicken and said, yes, that's a human. What's your point? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because you can point to all like the, the weaknesses and stuff of the ancient Greeks. And, you know, they, they were mentioned in our conversation with Ariella, but they were kind of the first ones starting to do this stuff. You know, if they made a lot of yeah. obvious mistakes, it's, it's, it's understandable. Right. It's 3,000 years ago. People didn't know shit about fuck, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I would also make a good t shirt. Right. (laughs) What is it? The initial clue only has to lead the user to the similarity cluster, the group of things they have that have many characteristics in common. Right. A dictionary is best thought of not as a book of Aristotelian class definitions, but a book of hints for matching verbal labels to similarity clusters, or matching labels to properties that are useful in distinguishing similarity clusters. Yep, yep. I don't have a lot to add to these ones. I think uh, they're nice and succinct and make their point. I don't either. For next time, we are reading the Less Wrong Posts, Typicality and Asymmetrical Similarity, and The Cluster Structure of Thing Space, which is a classic. I like that one a lot. That one stuck with me. The other one, Typicality and Asymmetrical and Asymmetrical Similarity, had, did not stick with me the same way because I don't remember what that one's talking about. Uh, it was probably a setup for the the one everybody remembers now. Yeah. I mean, I, I can kind of pick up what it's saying. You know what's fun is like, those are unusual words that you run into all the time. 
mm-hmm. but he does just talk that way. And, and I, I actually really appreciate that. It's fun. Oh, okay. Cool. I mean, any, anyone can like use big words when they've got time to sit and think about it. But like, this is, you know, when you hear him on podcasts, I hear, you know, he'll use complex language like this or like highly technical language. And then he'll like walk it back and like try and think of another way to approach it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I appreciate the, uh, compare the comparison to how my own thoughts are, which is less organized and less, uh, less word good. Yeah. Yeah. Should we start putting at the beginning of the less wrong sequence post that like we are reading through all the less wrong sequences originally written by Elias Ryadkowski and here's two of them. Yeah. People might forget that. Good point. Or if people just like are dropping in, we've been doing this for like two years now. It's a, maybe not a bad idea to start putting, just letting them know what we're doing. That's a good point. I think that makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, last thing, last thing is the most important thing, which is to give a shout out to this episode's patron. Yes, this episode's patron has a name that starts with a symbol that I don't even know how the heck to pronounce. We had to Google this, and apparently it's uh, a symbol that is pronounced like the TH in American. In American. In English? Yeah, and it looks like a, a cross between a D and a P. Frankly, it looks like runes that would appear on Thor's hammer, so I'm stoked for it. But luckily, they were polite enough to give us, uh, or accommodating enough to give us a pseudonym that we can give them a thanks a shout out for. Yeah. So this episode, we are thanking Thoramir Mar Johnson, also known as Tiny. Thanks, Tiny. Thank you so much. You have helped us get a hold on what post-rationalism is. All our listeners also now know that a little bit more. If they didn't know before, the path of them were probably shaking their heads saying, I can't believe these guys didn't know this already. But uh, you have helped make this possible. We are very appreciative of it. And I hope a lot of our listeners are too. I know I am. Yeah. All right. Couldn't do this without the patrons' support. Yeah, it means a lot. All right. Thank you, everybody. Stephen, I'll see you in two weeks. Sounds like a plan.